Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. And welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. I like saying our show's name a lot. I do like saying our show's name, and we actually do it pretty well. I know, we haven't like accidentally messed it up. I think maybe the one point when we had to re-record the first episode so many times we messed up. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, we had a lot of problems with our sound back then, but I think things are getting better with this new microphone that you so graciously procured for us. Our fancy microphone. Yes. Anyway, welcome to Roadside Horror Show. Yeah. Uh, today we're going to be taking you to Delaware. Oh yeah, Delaware. It's the ti- it's one of the tinier states. It is one of the tinier states, and it's also one of my favorites, along with the smallest state. Rhode Island? Yep. Oh, we'll get there soon. Yes, we will get there soon enough. We have to drive through Connecticut, which is always annoying. But... <laughs> <laughs> so Delaware, uh, it goes by the first state, right? That's on their license plates. Yeah. Apparently it's also called the Diamond State. I'm not 100% sure why, but okay. when you're tiny, I guess you got to shine like a diamond. Shine bright like a diamond. I mean, immortal <laughs> words of whoever the hell that was. I think it was Rihanna. <laughs> I think it probably was. <laughs> so I feel like with, uh, even though Delaware's tiny, I don't know about you, but I came across a lot of interesting stories when I was doing my research. I did too. Uh, I found out something very interesting about Delaware. They've only actually had one serial killer, so go Delaware. Is that, your, is that what your story is going to be with this? Today? No, I decided to be like, well, you know, Nicole still has to come up with one, so I might leave the easier one for her. Oh, you're so curious. Some options. But I love Delaware. I have been in Delaware so many times because we used to vacation at Rehoboth Beach a lot oh. when I was a kid. I also love the fact that they don't have sales tax. That's pretty amazing. The outlet shopping there is always what I remember from Delaware. Unlike Florida, because Pennsylvania, here we have, if you're not from Pennsylvania, we don't have sales tax on things like food from the grocery store or clothes or stuff like that. Necessities aren't taxed. Water, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Those things aren't taxed. But when I was in Florida and I went to go buy a pair of jeans and it said that it was $25.99 or whatever the price was... Mm -hmm. And they're like, uh, that'll be 27 whatever I'm like, what? But the sign says it was that. Why are you? And then sometimes it looked at me like I was crazy. And they're like, it's tax. And I'm like, on clothes? Like, I was really confused. <laughs> but Delaware has none of that shit. I mean, they'll get you with the, you know, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? With houses and stuff. Real estate tax? Oh, yeah, real estate tax. Yeah. Yeah. So you just go to Delaware to vacation and shop. You just don't go to their just don't go purchase to property. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. So. Right, you want to you wanna wow me with your story? Your true crime story? I will wow you. I will wow you right here, right now. All right, let's do it. All right. This week, story takes place in Delaware, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. What a triple threat. I know. So it's a little different from what we normally do on the show, but since the man and woman involved are both from Delaware and most of it takes place in Delaware, that's where I've chosen to place this story. So for the sake of an intro, we'll just say this takes place in the Highlands community of Wilmington, Delaware. It's a suburban area which is known for being a safe, picturesque area with coffee shops, beautiful parks, a museum, and murder, I guess. Murder! (laughs) So... Just so you can get an idea of the type of neighborhood we're dealing with, this area also boasts a median income, or median home value, sorry, median home value of $414,000. So these people are reasonably well off. Yeah, it's it's a nicer area. Yeah. I would say for sure. And I mean, this is, we're getting into a bit of a political thriller vibe going this week. Yeah. So... 
This is the murder of Anne-Marie Fahey. The story of a beautiful love affair that wasn't toxic at all. And true brotherly love. I feel like you're um, using a tone that would lead me to believe you're being sarcastic. And that also makes me very excited for the rest of the story. You know what? That's probably a safe assumption just because, first of all, I'm sarcastic as hell on a daily basis. And yeah. second of all, I really was being sarcastic. Okay, good. So, on June 29th of 1996, Anne-Marie Fahey, a secretary for Tom Carper, who was the governor at the time, was supposed to meet her boyfriend, Michael, and her family for dinner. But she never showed up. This was highly unlike her. She was known for being prompt, so when this happened... Obviously, her family and friends were a little freaked out. No one had heard from her since Thursday, and it was now Saturday. Also, no one could contact her, and they went to her apartment. She wasn't there. They got the police involved. They called her landlord to open her apartment for them, and they noticed that it was a complete mess. Clothes were on the floor, as well as her purse. She had left an expensive suit in a gift box instead of hanging it up, and there were perishable groceries still on the counter. This was not like her at all. She was very tidy. So at this point, they knew something was wrong. Yeah, for sure. So they had the police there. They searched the purse, first of all, and they found her ID and her wallet, but her keys were missing. They also found a bunch of love letters from a man named Tom Capano, who was a powerful political consultant and an attorney in the state of Delaware. That's not her boss, Tom, right? That's the governor is her boss, Tom. Yeah, but this is a different Tom. Yeah, different Tom. Tom Carper and Tom Capano, I know. I got to get my Tom straight. I know I always pick the stories with the confusing names. I mean, you'd like to torture me, I guess. I guess, and torture myself, because I'm the one who has to read it. (laughs) So anyway, Tom Capano was a powerful political consultant, like I said, and he was also even like the, not like attorney general, but like assistant attorney general or something like that. So he was, you know, pretty up Some kind of big wig in the local legal system. Yeah. So, searching her things also turned up her diary, which had entries alluding to an affair she was having with Tom Capano. One read, I have fallen in love with a very special person whose name I choose to remain anonymous. We know who each other are. It happened on the night of my 28th birthday. We have built an everlasting friendship. She was 30 at the time, so this affair had been going on for two years. Okay. Capano was a married man but was separated from his wife at the time. Uh, It was a more recent entry, however, that really got the attention of the police. It said, I have finally brought closure to Tom Capano. What a controlling, manipulative, insecure, jealous maniac. And we've all been there. We've all had that relationship. Oh, yeah. I've had it several times. So obviously the police were very interested in talking to Capano at this point. I mean, she called him a maniac, so yeah. that, that would be like the number one suspect Exactly. I think this was pretty much their only suspect throughout the whole thing. So, wasting no time at all, around 3 a.m., they went over to his house to question him. He comes out of the house looking a bit frazzled, or at least uh, an episode of the FBI files that I watched for part of my research would suggest so. He seriously looked like, hey guys, uh, definitely didn't just commit murder, what's up, how you, how you doing? <laughs> Like, that was pretty much the face. They had him, like, with his shirt unbuttoned, and he was looking all sweaty. His hair was a mess, like, all this stuff. You know, that's not blood over there. No, of course not. But it was 3 a.m. Maybe he's a rough sleeper. You don't know. You never know. That's true. Uh, I didn't even actually finish watching the episode because it was, like, an hour long. Normally, if I watch an episode of one of these for my my research, it's, like, a half-hour thing with commercials, and it's only 20 minutes. But this was an hour long, and it's still the commercials in it. Oh my god, no, pass. Yeah, so I was like, I'm done. I'm just going to read the rest of it that's and like just a, go by this. That's like a mini nope for me. 
Yeah, because I, I normally do, like, a mix. I try to watch something, and I try to read, like, several different things about. Mm-hmm. That's how I do my research. But that just got too time-consuming, and I was done. <laughs> <laughs> so they question him about the affair, and he admits to it, saying that it had been over for a long time now and that they still remain friends. I don't know. If I'm calling someone a jealous maniac, I'm probably not going to be friends with them. Yeah, especially if that's, like, a recent entry. Like Exactly, yeah. So, he also told the police that they had dinner together on Thursday night in Philadelphia and that he later took her back to his house before dropping her off at her apartment. They asked to search his house, but he said, well, this isn't a good time, my kids are asleep, why don't you guys just come back later? He informed the police that Anne Marie had been off on Friday and may have just gone away for the weekend and that she'd turn up Monday for work. How would he know that? Oh, because he had dinner with her. Yeah. But, I mean, obviously that wasn't the case since she she had plans. Yeah, she had plans with their family for that that dinner. So the police already know that, and they know that that was not the type of person that she was. Mm -hmm. He also described her as moody and sometimes suicidal and said that he wasn't surprised at all that she was missing, which is in direct opposition to everything that her family told the police. And I believe her family over this guy that she called a maniac. The police labeled it a missing person's case. They kind of had to do they didn't have a body, right? Yeah. Of course, no one was able to find her, and she didn't end up showing up for work on Monday. Or I probably wouldn't be telling you the story right now if she had. So soon the police began to suspect Anne-Marie had been the victim of foul play. They checked her bank accounts for any activity and found that her money hadn't been touched since the night of her disappearance. A neighbor in Anne-Marie's building told police that that following Monday that the night she was supposed to have disappeared, she heard the sound of heavy footsteps coming from her apartment, and most likely they were those of a man, and then hadn't heard anything from there since. Your story's already giving me that sinking feeling in my gut where I'm like, this is this is going to end so badly. Uh, and I'm, I'm like preparing myself oh, yeah. for the upset that no, I'm going to have. Things are about to get weird. <laughs> I'll tell you that. It's like, I, you'll find breath. out once I get there, but I read a certain thing, uh, like just a certain like line, and I was like, ooh, what's this? Okay, now I need to research this. So I'll tell you when that part happens. You can probably guess, though. They were also told by Anne-Marie's hairdresser that Anne-Marie had told her that Capano began stalking her after she started to date her current boyfriend and that she was afraid he was going to hurt her. The police at this point decide to check into Capano's story and they go to the restaurant that Capano said they were having dinner Mm -hmm. at in Philadelphia. They were able to speak with the waitress who served them that night and she said they seemed tense and that they would get quiet every time she approached the table, and that Anne-Marie barely touched her food the entire time. Not the ideal romantic evening for two. No, no, definitely not. On the weekend of July 4th, a reward for any information on Anne-Marie is issued, and one of the largest manhunts in Delaware's history begins. Police, friends, family, people from the town, and even the governor himself were looking for her, totaling around 300 people. Wow, that's a huge number of people searching. They found nothing. That's disappointing. That's disappointing for that large number of people searching. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Especially those that were just like, I don't care, I want the money. Yeah. On July 26th, President Clinton calls Governor Carper and offers the help of the FBI. So they begin working with the police on a case, but they still find absolutely freaking nothing. They didn't really have enough evidence at this point for a search warrant for Tom Capano's house, and he was still dodging them and coming up with excuses. So they're getting nowhere with him. The FBI soon learns from Capano's maid, though, that she was scheduled to clean the house a few days after the disappearance and was told that she wasn't needed since the kids didn't stay with him 
over the weekend. But this isn't a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. Because wasn't that what he told the police? Like, oh, don't you can't come in because my kids are sleeping. And... Exactly. He said, my kids are upstairs asleep. Hmm. So blatant lie. They also learned that the next time the maid did come to clean, the couch and rug had both been replaced. That's so sketchy. Yeah. So this led the FBI and police to develop a theory on what happened that night. They think that he murdered her in his house and rolled her up in a rug to dispose of her body more easily. Okay. They then find out on June 27th, when the disappearance took place, late at night, he had run out and bought a new rug. Hmm. So that night. So that, you know, goes along with their theory. They talked to Capano's estranged wife and learned that he had borrowed her Chevy Suburban at 7 a.m. Friday morning, which was the morning after Anne-Marie went missing. So things are just kind of piling up against him. Yeah, he looks super guilty. Yeah, but still, this is all... Speculation. Mm. So the police get their search warrant finally, and they're able to search the house. They checked under the rug, but didn't find anything. Like, they knew right where to go. They're like, I'm checking this rug. (laughs) But... There was nothing, but they did find two very small spots on his baseboards that appeared to be dried blood. So they ran it through the lab, and surely enough, it was blood. But sadly, there was no body, so they couldn't test her DNA against the blood. And her parents were also both dead, so they couldn't use their DNA either, so that was a bust. Hmm. And they couldn't do the siblings, even though she had several siblings. Yeah. I think there were like five of them or something. She had a lot of family, but they couldn't do that because it would be too different, the DNAs. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So they tried to interview Capano's friends and family at this point, but no one would talk with them. No one would cooperate. August 6th, the FBI received a call from a guy named Sean Taylor, who was, what well, they said Sean Taylor on the FBI files and in other things, but then the one I saw said Shaw, so I'm assuming they just forgot the end. Probably. I mean, the end. Yeah. Anyway, he was a project manager of a construction site that was run by Tom Capano's brother, Louis Capano. He was like, hey, I don't really want to talk about this on the phone, so let's just meet up somewhere. Okay, that's like... Yeah. I was the investigating officer. I get super excited about that call. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So the FBI meet him at a truck stop, and he tells them that the day after Anne-Marie went missing, he was told by his boss, Louis, to have four dumpsters on one of the sites pulled and dumped. It struck him as strange because none of the dumpsters were full, and that's not normally the practice because it would cost too much to have them all dumped when they're half full. So, Louis Capano's development company was subpoenaed and forced to hand over their dumpster records. They went to the dump site to search for anything that could link Tom Capano or his brother to this. Unfortunately, they were again unsuccessful because looking for something like that in a dump is, like, looking for a needle in a haystack. Yeah, I imagine it's probably, like, it's already been over a month now, mm-hmm. and lots of other trash and I think they searched fill. for four days or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Side note, I love that his brother's name is essentially Louis Capano. That's, That's like, the most Italian, it's like, construction. Very, yeah. Kind of, I expect him to have, like, a Brooklyn accent. Yeah, and, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Now that I can't think straight because I'm laughing too hard in my head. So they check so, the dump site. They yes. don't find anything. This is like the theme. They never find anything even though they finally get permission or finally know where to search. Exactly. So it seems like everything is against them at this point. So at this point, Tom looks guilty as sin. Mm-hmm. But they still have no evidence to back up their theory and can't press charges against him. So they're even able to track his credit card purchases around the time to a store called Happy Harry's. 
where the clerk said a man matching Capano's description asked about blood remover. Wow. Dumbass. Wow. Dumbass. Excuse me, I'm looking for a bargain here. Uh, I think we have this one type of blood remover, but I just, and I don't know, but it won't work for all types of blood. Will it work well, on tile and rug? Is this for A, B, or O, or all of them, or? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Just go and buy it and be done. And use cash. Exactly. Use cash, not your credit card. Again, dumbass. Anyway. I mean, theoretically, I'm not advocating not, no, of any course kind not, of suspicious activity. I just think, okay, I mean, he kind of is... Seems like committing the perfect murder since they're not actually finding any evidence, but then also the worst murder ever because they're finding so much circumstantial evidence. It's like, oh, he must have like the, what is it, the uh, luck of the Irish. Yeah, the luck of the Italians, I guess. Yeah, luck of the Italians. (laughs) It wasn't until August 6th that they finally got a break. Turns out that Anne Marie had donated blood shortly before her death, which the police had known about and tried to recover for DNA comparison against the blood they had found in Capano's home, but they were previously unsuccessful because it had been nothing but plasma at that point and was being shipped overseas. Oh, so they had like already run it through the like the centrifuge and separated yeah. it out. So they're Again, able to... you think you get a break. And then you don't. That's the Ugh. whole thing with the story and it's really frustrating. I got so frustrated while doing these notes that I just like, can I take a break now? But I was <laughs> like, no, power through it. So they're able to track down the plasma before it reached its destination and they began testing it. But Plasma is actually a really shitty source of DNA because plasma doesn't have the red blood cells anymore. Mm -hmm. And the red blood cells is what contains the DNA. So this was a long shot, but it was one that paid off, and they finally had something to test against their blood sample. It was a match with only the smallest chance that it wasn't her blood. Finally. So we finally have something to go on here. That's very exciting for me. It is. But this alone wouldn't be enough to bring up charges against him still. So they decided to check Capano's phone records and found out that he placed a call to a woman named Debbie McIntyre in Stone Harbor, New Jersey, on the morning of Anne Marie's disappearance. She turned out to be another one of his mistresses. They learned that Jerry Capano, Tom's youngest brother, he's got a bunch of brothers, had a boat that was anchored in Stone Harbor. Checking up on this, it turns out that Jerry sold the boat a little after Anne Marie's disappearance, and he sold it without the anchor. Yep. Wow. So obviously, like, well, her body's at sea. This 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 sounds like a thriller novel. It like, does. For, for real. It yeah. sounds like a thriller. Well, like I told you, I think I said, Anne Rule wrote yeah. a book on it. So. Yeah. So, still, this evidence was circumstantial, even though it's like guilt, 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 mm-hmm. guilt. This whole family's in on it just, yeah, but they still can't do anything. So, to get something concrete, they had to nail this creep now. Mm-hmm. They had to go undercover. So, I did not see that coming. Yeah, they decide to focus on Jerry for now and try to get him to crack and roll over on his brother or brothers. They began following him and found out that he was a known drug user and also collected firearms, which is illegal if you use drugs, apparently. You're not allowed to have firearms. Hmm. I don't know if that's a state thing or I think those are state laws here, right? I, I have no idea. So, they were able to search his house based on that. Anne-Marie had been missing for 15 months at this point, so it was a big deal. When they raided his house, they find two grams of cocaine, some marijuana, and 21 weapons. Wow. So they decide to threaten him with 10 years of prison time if he didn't cooperate. And on November 8th, Jerry, accompanied by his lawyer, his name is Gerard, actually, but everyone just called him Jerry. Gerard. Kind of like Gerard Butler. Mm-hmm. All his friends just call him Jerry. I know, because I'm one of his friends. No, I'm not. <laughs> Listen to Hani. I'm not that good to Hani. Exactly, <laughs> yep. Uh, so, on November 8th, 
Jerry, accompanied by his lawyer, told detectives that he had helped his brother dump a body weighted with an anchor from his boat off Stone Harbor on June 28, 1996. Apparently, they had stuck the body into a freezer first, but it wouldn't sink, so they had to weigh it down more. They even tried shooting at the freezer, but it still would not sink without the extra weight from the boat's anchor. Jerry also said that he helped his brother throw a blood-stained couch into the trash at his other brother Lewis's construction site. He says that he pleaded with his brother to confess, but Tom refused. That's when police bring in Lewis, who also sings, but he tries not to incriminate himself by saying, oh, well, you know, I saw a sofa in the trash at the construction site, and my brother said he had put some of Anne Marie's stuff in there. Mm -hmm. So it's all my brother. I knew nothing about it. I really don't know what's going on. Finally, on November 12th, get ready for this because you're going to want to cheer. They arrest Tom Capano on the highway I-95. Finally. Finally. Yes. It didn't say this in my research, but I'm imagining in my head a sort of OJ-style chase down I-95. Oh, except there's so much traffic on 95. I know that you're not going <laughs> to get anywhere. the slowest chase ever. <laughs> the slowest chase. <laughs> anyway, he's arraigned on murder charges and held without bail. Both of his brothers who were involved in the cover-up would be testifying against him in court. Okay. In exchange for immunity, of course. That's going to make Christmas awkward. Oh, yeah. The next day... A fisherman turns over a large cooler with a bullet hole to the police. What? Yep. Here's the weird part. This investigation has been going on for forever now. It's nearly 1998. She was found missing in the middle of 1996. Okay. So this fisherman found the cooler back in 1996. Oh. I don't know if he just didn't know of the crime because he did find it in New Jersey because that's where they dumped the body. Yeah, and he kind of, I wouldn't connect so the two, would you, right? I think that maybe he just heard the news once Capano was arrested. Mm-hmm. And that's why he turned out. But it seems weird to keep the cooler all that time. Well, I found this, you know, cooler with a gunshot through it. I'm going to keep this. Well, you know that kind of guy, though, where it's like they find stuff. And they're like, it's not terribly used. I might be able to, you know, do something with Those it. Those people are called hoarders. I, yeah, fair. fair. <laughs> all right. But, yeah, so they have that cooler, which is just weird that it turned up. And that is what made me want to do the story. I just thought, like, you know, the one thing, it was um, Ferris Wharton who was um, one of the attorneys doing mm-hmm. this case he also i believe ran for some position in delaware at one point because i remember seeing a commercial back in like oh five about it okay but he said the one thing that i'll never forget from my time in the 90s was the girl in the cooler oh so that was like cooler girl okay we're reading this anyway capano is indicted and the trial begins His brothers say that he told them he threw away a gun a few days after the disappearance but that it had never been fired. So they decided to talk to his other mistress, Debbie McIntyre, the one that they found. The The Jersey lady. Yeah. His Jersey boo. She, yeah, his Jersey boo. She initially denies being his boo. (laughs) I just wrote their affair, but now we're just going to say that. Um, She denies that. She denies everything else. Then finally she breaks down and tells them that she had bought him a twenty-two caliber Beretta six weeks before Fahey went missing. She also tells them that she knows Capano went for a boat ride with his brothers on June 28, 1996, which is something that he never told the police. Oh. Uh, they, both his brothers. Yep. So both Lewis and Jerry. Mm-hmm. They talk her into recording her phone calls with him from jail. Now, Capano is making friends on the inside <laughs> and asking for favors, but they are more than willing to co- cooperate with the police. Tito Rosa says Capano offered him $100,000 to have both McIntyre and his brother Jerry Capano killed. 
Damn, he was desperate. Yep. Nothing says brotherly love like a cap in your ass. <laughs> Another inmate said Capano wanted him to burglarize McIntyre's house. To what end? Just to, like, scare Just her? to scare and not testifying. Mm. So now Capano is facing multiple charges. There's the murder of Anne-Marie Fahey, three counts of criminal solicitation for conspiracy, uh, conspiring to burglarize his other mistress's house, and to have her and Cherry killed. And also, Capano and his brothers are being sued by Anne-Marie's siblings for wrongful death and conspiring to cover up her murder. So all that's going on. Things get a little weird in court when Capano first tries to say that he dumped her body, but that her death was an accident. Then he starts to, to throw Debbie under the bus and say that she shot Anne-Marie. Then they find another mistress. What? Yep. A woman named Susan Loth. Louth? I don't know how you pronounce it. L-O-U-T-H. I would say Loth because it just rolls Loth, off the tongue better. Yeah. But she testifies that Capano asked her to spread the rumor that Debbie shot Anne-Marie. Ooh, what a shady, shady bitch. Yep. How many other women are there, I wonder? They also... It sounds like one of my exes. <laughs> yeah, last time I checked with how many times that he cheated on me, it was 22 times. That's insane. Yep. So I feel like this Capano guy is the same type of creep. Anyway, they had a woman named Dr. Carol A. Tavini come in to discredit Jerry Capano's testimony. She says that he suffers from something called confabulation, which is a fancy word that means he fabricates memories. Huh. The prosecution, in turn, just tears her apart because she hadn't even interviewed Jerry at all. <laughs> so just going to be like, confabulation, that's what it is. I'm a doctor, trust me. <laughs> yeah. So she just never even talked to him. It was just like, it's that. Clearly. Yeah. So this thing is a freaking circus. Capana then takes the stand and tries to say that he's just a good, upstanding family man. I mean, I believe it. He has enough mistresses to start a whole new family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. So, he's just trying to paint this wonderful picture of himself. And I don't think anyone believes it. He also creates this elaborate crime of passion story that has Debbie bursting through the door with a gun and seeing him in the arms of Anne-Marie. The gun then accidentally goes off. This is complete bullshit, and the prosecution says he's basing it entirely off of a crime that he prosecuted in 1976. What? No! Yeah. <laughs> from like his greatest hits as a prosecutor exactly That's yes insane. this guy is just the worst yeah oh he's so desperate it's just like it's he's just pulling out all the stops yeah, all here the stops. so finally on march 16th after a long and crazy trial capano is found guilty and sentenced to death oh capano tries several times after this to appeal on various grounds the biggest being insufficient evidence and finally uh, has the death penalty taken off the table in 2006 so instead, he will now be spending life in prison. He keeps going, though, and tries to get a new trial, but is denied. He wouldn't have to worry about this anyway, because his life in prison only meant five more years after that for him. And on September 19th of 2011, Capano was found dead in his cell at the age of 61. A guard had found him doing a routine check, and the medical examiner said that he died of cardiac arrest. Oh. Funny thing, before we take our break, this is yet another story that has a TV movie with a lifetime movie name. This one is called And Never Let Her Go. Oh. And it was based on a book by Anne Rule, like I said earlier to you. And it stars Mark Harmon as Tom Capano. Mark and, Harmon? Yeah. And Catherine Morris. The sexiest man alive in 1986? Exactly. That Mark Harmon. Who I think looks better with the gray hair than he Love did it. when he was younger. Oh. Yeah. 
but Catherine Morris as Anne-Marie Fahey. Both people are leads on crime shows, which is funny because yeah. he's Gibbs from NCIS, mm-hmm. and she is on um, Cold Case. Cold Case. She's the one with the hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And everyone who has seen that show knows what I mean by the one with the hair. Yeah, the one with the hair. My oh. mom's like, I was like, I think she's really pretty. My mom's like, I don't know, that hair. like. <laughs> <laughs> it was like... The worst hair. It, it like who? It was like the evil version of like the Rachel haircut. It's yeah, it's terrible because everyone knows that hair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was even a Mad TV thing where like they had her like finding, um, you know, solving the crime and doing all this stuff. And at the end, like the past version of this, the dead person is like, brush your hair. <laughs> like it's great. But yeah, that was the story of Anne-Marie Fahey and Tom Capano. That was super thrilling. That was, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of weird stuff. So now you see what I said about, you know, the completely not toxic relationship. Yeah. And also the true brotherly love. I see how your sarcasm works. Yes. That is my sarcastic ass. On that note, I'm going to take a pit stop. Okay, sounds good. Because it's hot and we need to turn the air conditioning back on for a little bit. Snacks. And we're back. And we're back. And it Nicole sounds so much better when you do it. Oh, uh, that's because I have that. And we're back. I can't do it. I don't know. It's that dramatic sound that I use. I love it. And I do have the story for you. I have the, the haunting story, and I think you're going to like it. I think I will, too. So we're going to stop today in Dover, Delaware, Ooh. which is the state capital, and it's also the second largest city in Delaware, the first being Wilmington, where your story took place. Uh, we're headed to Woodburn Hall, and there's actually kind of a weird connection to your story because your story is about, like, the secretary to the governor. Okay. And my story is about the official residence of the governor. That's pretty cool. See, a lot of our stories tend to, like, tie together in some way, I know, I've and we don't, we don't talk about them beforehand. We just give each other the bare bones information so we're not accidentally doing the same story. And then we end up being like, well, it's not the same story, but here's parallels. Interesting. You know, great minds and all that. For a second, when you said that that's something to do with my story, I thought maybe Mark Harmon was in it, too. <laughs> I was hoping. Mr. Pam Dauber, no. <laughs> so, Woodburn Hall. It's this two-story Georgian mansion that was built in 1790 by a man named Charles Hilliard. It's what you'd expect from a Georgian mansion. It's like two sections. One's like the bigger section with like the big white columns and mm-hmm. like the main part of the house. There's a slightly shorter wing right next to it that's um, just, uh, you know, ballrooms and other functions in the house. Uh, The layout's pretty standard, apparently, for a mansion. It has a stately drawing room, a music room, a dining room, really wide hallways, because it's Georgian. (laughs) Think more more, uh, Pride and Prejudice. Okay. More like Pemberley Hall, kind of a mini. Okay, I hated that book. (laughs) Sorry, I am not a Jane Austen fan. It's okay. At all. She's not for everyone. No, really not. I just... I find especially a lot of the female authors from that era to be just very dry, like the British ones, just very dry and very just like, oh, yes, and this is a very lovely looking man. And, you know, like all this stuff. The style, though. It's like, ugh. So, Woodburn Hall. Looks like Pemberley, but tinier. Gotcha. Don't hate it. Pocket-sized Pemberley. There we go. Pocket-sized Pemberley. Don't hate it. Um, It also has a bunch of, like, really old, well-established trees, like crepe myrtles, pine trees, poplar trees surrounding the grounds. And there's a formal garden in the back that has these huge um, boxwood trees, and they actually formed it into a boxwood tree maze. So a little little garden maze, right? A little hedge maze. And then there is, in front of Woodburn Mansion, this gigantic, looming, like, gnarled poplar tree. And people say it's super eerie because it's so old and thick. 
that the trunk has like hollow holes in it, so it oh. kind of winds up, but it's like still there on the property because it's a living tree. And I just remembered that I mean, now that we're switching over from true crime, yeah, true crime, to paranormal, and then you mentioned a freaking hedge maze. Mm-hmm. I've learned very quickly ever since Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire to be very afraid of hedge mazes. Nope. Really, the shiny didn't do it for you. It oh, was Harry Potter with the the <laughs> what the what's that called a topiary with the the ones that are shaped like animals. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was... The Shining, I didn't like The Shining. Now I just sound like such a buzzkill, because I'm like, I hated every book I've ever read. I'm like in Austin. <laughs> I don't like The Shining. Well, I just think that... I never have fun. I never have fun. I don't like sunshine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I do like things. Trust me, I do, and I have a lot of favorite books, but Stephen King and Jane Austen are just not, I, not my favorites. I tried. I really tried with several Stephen Kings when I was younger. I was like, ooh, he's like the master of horror. I should read everything. I'm just like, <laughs> okay... Okay, and nothing. I thought the I, the premise was interesting, and I do want to stay at the was the Stanley Hotel. Mm-hmm. The Stanley yeah. Hotel. I want to stay there at some that point. That maze is actually at the Stanley Hotel. That wasn't like really part of the. Oh really? Book from what I remember. Yeah, I don't think there was. Yeah, there wasn't anything in the book. There was the the topiary in the book. Though. Yeah, the topiary, but like the whole hedge mage. Part. Yeah, that wasn't in the book. Hedge maze. Yeah. Hedge mage is something different. Anyway. A hedge mage is something different. <laughs> Back to Delaware. I hate to be a buzzkill, but back to Delaware. All right. I love Delaware. We'll go back there. I do love Delaware. See something I like. <laughs> so Woodburn Hall. School Gardens, this big-ass poplar tree that's, like, kind of spooky and haunted looking outside of it already. So already we're off to an awesome start. Plus, they have a bunch of, like, fountains and, like, reflecting ponds in the garden. So it's very, very lovely. Like, the pictures, you can go to, like, the website for Delaware.gov, and they have these awesome photos of it. It's oh, cool. a really, really cool-looking place. So, like I said before, it was built by this dude named Charles Hilliard. Um... And when he passed away, the estate went to his daughter, Mary, and her husband, Dr. Martin Bates. It was actually during the time that the Bates lived in Woodburn Hall when the first paranormal activity was reported. So before they opened their motel. Yes, before they opened their motel. It was interesting, too, because like you can actually go to Delaware.gov and find accounts of these stories because they're so well documented because it eventually became the governor's house. Yeah. And... The Bates' most notable story, it's from 1815. It was reported by this man named Dr. Lorenzo Dow, who is a wandering Methodist preacher. Okay. And he had come to preach at Woodburn Hall, and the Bates had offered him to stay overnight as their guest. And then the next morning, as he's coming downstairs to eat breakfast with his hosts, he passes a gentleman going up the stairs who was, quote, dressed in the fashion of the preceding generation, with hair completely cued, knee breeches, ruffled shirt, etc. Such a dapper gentleman. Mm-hmm. So he gets down to the breakfast table, and Dr. Bates is like, as, your, as our guest, would you like to say our morning prayer before we eat? And Mr. Dassa asks if he wants him to wait for the other guests to arrive. And the Bates are kind of like, there are no other guests, it's just us and you. And he's like, well, what about the man I saw going upstairs? And he proceeds to describe Uh-oh. the gentleman. Which then causes Mrs. Bates to get very distressed because the way he described the man fits the description of her father towards the end of his life. Oh. So a majority of the owners and um, people who have experienced the same ghost, because that ghost is still there, do believe it's the late Charles Hilliard. In life, Charles was known for his deep love of really good spirits and really good wines. Like, that was his jam. Like, he actually built a wine cellar he in the house. spirits and he became one. What, what? I had to. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hate myself for it, but... So he, has, he, he loves spirits still to this day. 
there's a bunch of reports where uh, one of the owners of the man- manor would say he would fill this antique decanter that he had in the dining room every night and fill it with wine. And then when he would come down the next morning, it would be almost empty again. And that was very much attributed to Charles. So Hygiene. he's a booze hound. He's a booze hound. Mm-hmm. And one of the other residents reported seeing a ghost of a man in a white wig helping himself to a decanter in the dining room, as well as noticing that some of the finer vintages in the wine cellar also went missing. Nice. <laughs> so, so, I he mean... not only is a booze hound, but he has expensive taste. Yes, he has expensive taste. <laughs> so, like, I mean, if you think about it in the grand scenario of, like, spooky-ass ghosts you could have in your house, the guy who's, like, has, like, the fancy bitch taste in wine, he's, yeah. like, that's that's what he does. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that as long as he's not, like, touching me and, like, yeah, exactly. he's throwing just, bottles like, at my head. He's just going about his business, hanging out at his house, drinking your wine. He still would throw the bottles at your head, but he doesn't want to waste the good stuff. Exactly, so... so. Eventually, the Bates sold the house in 1825 to Daniel and Mary Cowgill. And this actually gets kind of cool. So the Cowgills were very well-known abolitionists in, like, the Philadelphia, Delaware community. Okay. And they were also Quakers. So they ended up freeing all of the slaves associated with Woodburn Hall because they now own them. So they freed them all. And then they also offered Woodburn Hall as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Nice. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Like, they definitely practiced what they preached as Quakers and abolitionists. That's also how one of the other ghosts, which is considered one of the more malevolent ghosts that actually haunt the estate, uh, originates from. It's this pre-Civil War period between 1825 and, you know, 1860. Um, The story goes that one day there were a bunch of slave catchers in the area searching for a band of escaped slaves. And as part of the Underground Railroad, the slaves would come to Woodburn Hall. They'd hide them in the cellar, the wine cellar, actually. And then later in that night, they would take them out to the river that was close by and just have them escape up the river, okay. go to their next stop. So the slave catchers show up at Woodburn Hall. Cowgill drives these guys away. He's like, get off my land, blah, blah, blah. I don't want you here. Kicks them out. One of the slave catchers, however, is convinced that Cowgill is hiding these escaped slaves that they're looking for. So he hides in the huge poplar tree at the front of the property. Okay. He climbs up there, waits into the night to see if he can catch the slaves sneaking into the manor house, into the mansion. Unfortunately, he got a little sleepy and he slipped and fell down the tree, getting his head stuck in one of the bigger holes oh. in the trunk. And there he hung until he died. <gasps> Shit. Yep. <laughs> So I kind of feel bad, but not so bad. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, sorry, not sorry, as the kids say. Um, And it's interesting because visitors to Woodburn Hall do report occasionally seeing this like apparition of like a hanging body on the tree from one of the holes. And when they go out to investigate, there's nothing there. So sort of like a disturbing. Yeah, kind of disturbing, but you know. At least it's not like he doesn't do anything in the house. It's almost like a, a, what did you call it, a residual haunting? Residual haunting, Mm -hmm. yeah. Like reliving his death over and over and over again. Which he deserves. Fair enough. So Woodburn Hall also has some of the normal things you associate with like a paranormal activity hotspot. Like people hear footsteps all times of day and night. You will see objects move, that sort of thing. Hear weird knocking sounds. Nothing too crazy or malicious. The only, uh, there's two other ghosts that people do report seeing pretty frequently um, as like, these are the apparitions that appear. One of them is a civil war, or not sorry, a revolutionary war soldier who just kind of floats around saluting people at various times a day, doesn't really interact, almost seems again, like a residual ghost. Yeah. And then the last ghost that people have seen, which is interesting because she didn't make up an appearance until the 1940s 
is this little girl dressed in a red, red gingham sundress. Okay. So she's often seen wandering the gardens. She likes to play in the reflecting ponds and in the fountains. And sometimes towards the evening, she'll also appear holding a candle, wandering through the gardens, looking for something. Okay. Um, they say that actually she had made an appearance at one of the governor's inaugurations in like 1985. And people felt like like they were being pushed out of the way. And then other guests later that they reported seeing a little girl in a red gingham dress that was kind of dressed a little bit outside of what was fashionable. Oh, shit. Yeah. And they're kind of like, well, that's weird. And when the governor asked about it, one of the staff was like, well, actually. Actually. This house we're going <laughs> to have you live in whilst you serve the people of Delaware. It's very haunted. It's very haunted. Um, actually, it was interesting, too, because the house came into the state's ownership in 1965 because the current governor and his wife actually loved the house. When his wife had been a young woman, she had actually stayed at the house with the former owner, loved it, thought it was making property. By the time that her husband was the governor, the house is in terrible disrepair. So working with her husband, she secured the funds to not only renovate the house and repair it and bring it back to its original Georgian glory, but they actually found the funds to furnish the entire Woodburn Hall with furniture and appointments that were time appropriate to like the yeah. 1790s. So it's kind of cool. Um, cool. You can totally go tour it. You can visit any day during the week. It's free, which is pretty awesome. You just need to call and make an appointment. Okay, that's cool. So if you're ever in Dover, like do that. you can hit there. You can hit up Fort Delaware, which is also apparently a very haunted site in Dover. There's lots of haunted crap in Dover. I tend to, I think I drive through Dover, but I never really stop there. Yeah. So More Wellington, I think, is usually the place to stop or yeah. do business in. I don't know. But that's my story. I thought it was cool. That is pretty cool. Like, I, like that was the best ghost I've ever heard of. William Hill, he's just like, we'll steal your booze. Yeah. And hang out. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> Takes I, your good least... stuff. I'd rather have a drunk ghost than an angry ghost. Right? So, yeah. Right? I feel the same way about people. Exactly. Yes. I'd rather have a drunk person in my house than an angry person. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that bring, brings us to the end of our, our show. Unless you have something you want to share about. I guess I don't really have anything right now. Not today. No more hate for Jane Austen or anything. No more hate for Jane Austen. Sorry, Jane. You my girl, yo. You my girl, yo. <laughs> Miss you, boo-boo. <laughs> uh, should we do our pluggables? Let's do that. Um, so, guys, we would love to hear from you. If you want to send us any stories that you have that happened to you personally or someone that you know, uh, just write down, of course, the state that you're in so we know when to read it. But email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Roadside Horror Show. Feel free to share your stories. We're going to go ahead and post some Images and links to the locations we talked about today and some more follow-up on the story so you can relive the amazingness that we found for you today. Exactly, yes. It's always good to like try to get you guys to like see what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, we'd also like to thank E. Massey for composing our theme song. And we'd like to thank Yox Rocks Design for designing our logo. All right. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll see you on the road next week. Woo-hoo!